Kia ora and welcome to this, the very first episode of the Sonic Speculations podcast. My name is Nathaniel Otley and over the next several months I'll be your host as we get an inside look into the creative processes of a few of the many immensely talented composers and other sound creatives here in Aotearoa. Today's inaugural guest is Tāmaki Makoto composer Eve de Castro Robinson. One of New Zealand's foremost composers, Eve undertook her formal training at the University of Auckland, culminating in being the first awardee for DMAS in composition in 1991. That same year, she was the Auckland Philharmonia's composer in residence. In 1998, she was the winner of the inaugural Sounds Contemporary Award with her work Chaos of Delight III for Women's Voices, an award she would win again in 2007 with the work These Arms to Hold You for Children's Voices in Orchestra. Her opera, Len Lai, a five-act chamber opera, premiered to a sold-out season at the Maidment Theatre in Auckland in 2012. In 2018, her album, The Gristle of Knuckles, won Classical Artist of the Year at the New Zealand Music Awards. She has worked with and been commissioned by many artists from New Zealand and around the world, including the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, NZSO, the APO, Chamber Music New Zealand, the New Zealand String Quartet, NZ Trio, and the Nash Ensemble of London. Soloist collaborators include Bede Williams, Alexander Ivashkin, Jane Manning, Nicholas Isherwood, and Stephen DePledge. Eve retired from the University of Auckland in 2019 after 25 years teaching, and is currently the co-chair of the board at the Sounds Centre for New Zealand of Music. A couple of notes before we begin. Firstly, when discussing the work Tumbling Strains, Eve is very frank and open about her mental health. Hearing about this is an issue for you, I would suggest skipping three and a half minutes from the beginning of the discussion about tumbling strains. Also, in the discussion, we accidentally misattribute the authorship of the book Behind Bars, which should instead be attributed to Elaine Gould. If you like what you hear, please like, rate, review, and or share, depending on your chosen platform. In addition, please subscribe. I have eight episodes planned for this pilot series, with a number of other very exciting guests already confirmed. As will be the case with all episodes, you can find a list of links to recordings, websites, and other material of interest in the episode description or on my website. If you'd like to, please get in touch, sonicspeculations at gmail.com. And if you're interested in finding out more about the project, there is a short preview episode on the same feed or channel that you are watching this episode on. And I'm joined now by Eve Castro robinson Kia ora, Eve. Kia Maria, Nathaniel. Great to talk to you. So the first question I'd like to ask is, how did you come to composition? What was it in your background that meant that you found um, composition an attractive thing to do? And why, why composition? That's a, yeah, that's a multi-omni-pronged uh, question, really, because I think when I try and analyze this kind of thing, not that one can uh, do a deep analysis, it goes way back to the type of child I was, which was, a, which was a, a girl of intense feelings, shy, fairly quiet, but always listening and observing. And uh, also my parents were both, as it were, separately musical, but didn't necessarily claim to be. So I didn't come from a family of known composers or musicians, apart from, in fact, my father played clarinet in the Otago uh, capping band. Um, so he had a, a deep and intense love of, of music in a, in a different way from my mother's, which was much more warm and natural. And she'd sit at the piano and, and play. She could, she could play by ear, which is something I, 
always uh, admiring other people because I just never been able to do it, especially embarrassing at family occasions where, you know, someone play happy birthday on the piano and I think, oh no, don't ask this person who's supposed to be a musician. Uh, I'm truly at that kind of embarrassing level. So she would sit and play old war tune stuff she grew up with, but also the early Beatles and, and music from films and stuff and would sing along. She later bought a, a, um, a pianola. Wow, what, a, what an instrument that is. Um, and we got rid of it in the family, which is such a shame. So we'd sit at that and pump the pedals and, and um, bang out a tune. It would bang out a tune. So I came from that kind of background and I duly went for piano lessons because I think it was deemed that I was the musical one or I, I perhaps wanted to. And I, in a way, I loved the music. I loved the Schubert, I loved the Chopin. I loved anything uh, sort of more on the sentimental side of classical, I guess, but that expanded. So I did all that and then in my uh, teenagehood, I, I slightly veered away from uh, those kind of rather regimental uh, lessons. And I, I did get my ATCL from Trinity College, the associate teacher diploma after three goes, very, very nerve wracking stuff to a, a girl like me, sweaty fingers, unable to keep them still, all that kind of terror, but that's all right. Um, scales, you know, reverse scales and, and thirds, whatever they were called, hand. And I'm sure it's great discipline, but I, I never really had that discipline for learning instruments. Then it was the drums. And as a sort of sulky 16 year old, I, I bought a drum kit, I think with mum's blessing and I'd practice that, but that was more for a sort of image thing. And I soon found that learning drums was just as damn difficult as any other instrument. Then there was a cello period. Um, and so when I was a, a sort of a mid-teenager, I had this love for rock music and classical music going side by side. And in point of fact, I'd take myself off to memorable gigs at the town hall that I can remember, like Charles Rosen, the famous uh, Beethoven scholar and pianist. And I sat above him in the circle there at the town hall. I remember looking down on these, on this bald head and broad shoulders. And he, he went into the first bars of the Appassionata Sonata. And I remember that as being a key moment of a kind of musical recognition. Um, and then we had Yehudi Menuhin visit and more Olympany. But at the same time, I was also going to gigs um, like the Rolling Stones at um, RIP Charlie Watts a couple of days ago uh, at, at Western Springs and Elton John and Joe Cocker and then there was Roxy Music and Lee, Lou Reed and a wonderful panoply of, of um, 20th century greats really. So I had both those things going on and then I went to study graphic design and did a slew of other jobs and eventually um, rocked up at the School of Music because my then husband had said we'd gone on a sabbatical overseas and I didn't know what I was going to do when, 
we got back, he said, what do you really love? And I said, well, I really love music the best. Um, and I think if he hadn't asked that question, I'm, I don't know, quite know what would have happened, but I, I came back and enrolled part-time at the University of Auckland. And so things took off from there and I did my BMUS and MMUS and DMUS and then tutored and then lectured. And I've only just left there a couple of years ago. <laughs> So let's pick up on that. You said you had a graphic design background and it strikes me looking at a lot of your scores that your notation, your handwritten notation is very particular and quite uh, beautifully done. Do you see your background in graphic design um, translating to the actual calligraphy of music? Yes, I think that correlation must be true because if well, they go hand in hand, as it were, because if you're working closely with a pen, nib on paper or manuscript or whatever, you have to be accurate. But also there's a kind of celebration of that going on in your mind. You don't choose either thing unless you enjoy that kind of translation of feeling into visuals, which isn't. Uh, in this case of graphic design, big sweeps uh, of, of um, paint like that. It's more particular. Uh, and yes, I used to enjoy, well, I still do when I give myself the chance, and I really should go back to handwritten scores, but there's such a pressure of, of, um, of um, computer-notated scores for people uh, that unless it's a solo piece, orchestras and, and chamber groups, I mean, the more or less the market, well, not so much the market, but just clarity demands a computer notated score. Uh, but that, that kind of specificity in, in graphics, I enjoy doing and it, it's quite an art. So I, I do remember noticing fellow students scores were much scruffier than mine. They didn't you know, for whatever reason, have a very good knack uh, with the pencil, say. Um, whereas I love forming the, the, the quaver and then the, the beam, the, the um, stem with another pen and then the beam with another calligraphic one. And there's something very satisfying. It's, it's like drawing. You're drawing a code. And um, I was just looking at um, Elaine Barkin's wonderful um, uh, behind the bars, behind bars, I think it is that big fat tome on notation, wonderful stuff. Uh, you know, the, the specificity of distance between things, all that, that the computer has now taken away from us. So I think uh, to take that, that graphic angle to full, to, to fruition is to say that I think while you're forming uh, a handwritten score, you, you, you have a, a deeper understanding about what you're trying to do because A, you're doing it in slow motion um, and B, you're having to think about, and along with that, you're having to think about what sound you're forming. So you can't just, a la um, Sibelius, say, punch and cello, crotchetic was 124, and off you go. And then a bar line comes up and 
you have to be much more um, much freer in a way but you, you could create your own limits around what you're doing and one of my favorite ever pieces of teaching was from Douglas Muse, my first teacher. He walked into the room and he said, I can't replicate his Newfoundland falsetto, but he said, there are no bar lines in music. Who taught you that? Oh, the revelation of that statement. I love that kind of simple teaching, just a statement that gives itself over to all sorts of small realizations, small and large. And I've, I've since used it with, with students because of course there are no, there's no such thing as bar lines. You create them. And that's one of the downsides of um, computer notation. It keeps coming at you with, I say to students over the years, why have you stopped that there? Well, they can't really answer it because the bar lines come up. So you have to do something else. You have to create a strong beat on the next, in the next bar. The well, that's of, a nonsense. The sort of grid that Sibelius provides that you sort of um, have to very actively struggle against. Yes, that's right. And if you don't know you're struggling against it, oh, what a shame. You were talking earlier about other musical genres that you were interested in, going to lots of rock and, and pop music concerts. I think of some of your music and, and I see very clear uh, elements of that or strives towards that. I think of something like um, Tumbling Strains, which where the opening is very sort of hits you immediately. Uh, and it strikes me as sort of very different in terms of a, um, a classical duo for, for violin and cello. Do you consciously try and draw from a, a number of different musical genres? No, is the simple answer to that. Um, pregnant pause, no. But unless I'm deliberately um, being eclectic or polystylistic, uh, in which case it's very obvious and I'll, I'll insert something. But if you think of people who are influenced by gamelan or, or um, music from somewhere else. No, I don't do that. I've rather always been keen on creating, in Gillian Whitehead's wonderful words, I must write the kind of music that only I can write. I've used that as a touchstone. Uh, well, I haven't found it hard to. It's just what I do. I don't like to be derivative. I just, as it were, do my own thing. Um, but of course there will be influences. And if one thinks uh, that everything you write has, has resulted from everything you've ever heard or experienced, which is a strange kind of all encompassing profound thought, um, then it must be the case that things will be recognizable. And of course, with our, music we love to identify others in order to understand it try to understand it we identify influences and sounds uh, that piece tumbling strains uh, which is quite a striking work um, I, I wrote under very difficult um, mental circumstances I was in a dep bad depression and it, it um, 
took a great deal to draw that piece out of myself. And when I think about it now, I remember just thinking, well, I'll, I think I had the beginning and this depressive episode was pretty serious actually. Uh, in retrospect, I, I'll just keep writing. And in a way I didn't quite have a grip on what I was writing, which is interesting retrospectively, but I just kept going. Uh, and I think that's been one of more, my more successful pieces, perhaps because of that. In other words, it came from a different place that was um, less contrived um, and more direct. And it certainly got a, a ferocious, almost sort of animal uh, quality about it. Politics is never far from, and actually is often inseparable from your music. You've talked about this on a number of different occasions, but how is the process when you're writing something that has maybe an extra musical political background, how does that, how does the piece come about in that particular instance? I think one can have a, a, a specific political event or, or um, issue in one's mind and really, Again, it's a, it's a contrivance. <laughs> um, you can either use something direct, like I'm just thinking of um, Zhevsky's uh, The People United Shall Never Be Defeated, the, the, the use of that stonking um, Chilean workers um, song, and then the variations uh, thereof, fantastic work. Uh, or you can just summon up the kind of depth of feeling about the issue and have that, have the work grow out of that. And I suppose I try to do uh, the latter. Otherwise you risk, uh, I don't know, being didactic or being too obvious or being <laughs> contrived, any of these kind of things. Um, you rather hope that uh, depth of utterance will come from your depth of feeling when you wrote the thing. I mean, I've used slogans in a few pieces, uh, a piece called Cries of Auckland. That was a commission from the New Zealand String Quartet in Australia's Sydney's Song Company, um, Six Voices and String Quartet. And there was, a, the, there was a number of us, Jack Body included, uh, Louise Webster, who were given cries of, and we were to um, fit our own city in. So I chose Auckland and I used um, cries and, and shouts and slogans from my experience over the decades. So that, that was one uh, kind of overtly political piece, but that can be listened to as a piece of, as it were, concert music, perfectly happily. How do you see the balance between uh, something that people who write political often get asked about is how much of this background do you need to know to understand the music? And how do you see that, if, it, if you see it as a tension, how do you see that, that playing out? Um, I think you have to, as a composer, go beyond, beyond the obvious. Um, 
in order to say anything decent. At best, I think it's a mixture, a, a, a meeting or a balance between those, the specificity and the, the creative. If I think of, say, From Scratch and what Phil Dadson um, was on about when he came back from London, having worked with the um, Cornelius Cardew's Scratch Orchestra. It was a socialist collective group that believed in a certain thing. And he came back here and set up from scratch. Uh, he's someone I admire very much because of these attitudes, someone who's been able to take the kind of political and at the same time be uh, a, a socialist, a committed socialist about it and manifest music that is that clearly springs from those things and is also rhythmic, which is something we respond to on a visceral and atavistic level. Um, and also on a simple level, you were talking before about tumbling strains. People love rhythmic stuff, pulsed music, all of us. Oh, can't talk for everyone. Um, but I think with From Scratch say that that um, the political reached a, a pretty good, uh, don't know whether the word zenith is correct in that, in that um, the circumstance, but with pieces like um, Pacific 3210 about French testing in the, in the South Pacific, Pacific so the intensity of the works, the rhythm, yes, the chants and the slogans, but it's the whole experience um, in the same way as a, 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 a painting, or a Guernica, you know, Picasso's Guernica for a famous um, example of a political painting. Um, but then, you know, in, in, in uh, visual artwork, you've, you've got signs and and um, signals and symbols that you can work with. Whereas in music, it's much harder. You have to work with uh, suggest the suggestion of um, sound. Um, so there's no simple answer to that. In a piece called Tipping Point, I wrote a couple of years ago um, for the Auckland Philharmonia. And I decided to dedicate that to my son, whose birthday it was on the day of the premiere. And, and it was one of my, oh, it sounds, no, it sounds too shallow to, to utter, but it was, a, I was on about climate change. You could argue that every piece of music written now is in some way connected to the concept of climate change and that we can't get away from it as, the prevailing state of things. Uh, but I, 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 I guess I came at it with the usual intensity that I employ with every piece. And so it, it, ha it has these um, powerful kind of chords and utterances and it has stamping feet like the march of, of protesting feet. Um, and it has a clock ticking away in the background, the clock motif, which of course is a very well-worn one for any uh, uh, composer, how to keep literal time, but at the same time as reflecting real time. 
that happens on a woodblock, I think, throughout the whole piece. And then I divided it in half, which <laughs> isn't easy with a very short piece. And I figured that it could be played, either half could be played first. Um, I don't know whether that'll ever be tested. And one half is very visceral and angry almost. Well, I don't think you can translate ang anger into music very successfully. It's more about intensity, uh, energy, and, and, and uh, something uncontrolled. Um, and then the second half is its direct contrast or opposition, which is all to do with childhood lullabies and sentimentality and nostalgia. And then I think there are people walking off at the end, leaving the, the um, woodblock ticking, the time ticking away. Oh, I make it sound like a terrible cliche, but I think it worked pretty well in practice. I think often when you start speaking about music in, in terms of language, you know, actual words, things can, you're instantly reducing things down so that anything can sound sort of contrived. Um, yes. When you presented it to the APO for did you choose, you said there are interchangeable sections, did you choose which order they went in or did they? Well, that's a nice question. Um, no, I was pretty sure that, you know, you've got a commission, you've got a certain date, it's going to happen. The, the, the concerns are much more prosaic, aren't they? Conductor comes, you have to give him the score. I say him, it usually is, but increasingly not, which is great. In this case, it was a him, him, the wonderful Giordano Bellincampi. And, you know, what comes first will more or less bar one. And I guess at that stage, I wasn't thinking, oh, you know, premiere, we could try it the other way. <laughs> <laughs> That's for the next performance. Um, and actually, formally, um, with an A, it's interesting to, to think about that kind of interchangeable thing, because of course we know that happens in piano music, um, all sorts of pieces from mid last century, where, you know, with stochastic or chance elements, you start somewhere. Doesn't happen quite so much now, does it? So you've written three works based on the artist Len Lai, Len songs, Len dances, and your 90 minute chamber opera, Len Lai. Um, what is it about his art that drew you to a, to respond to it in a in a musical manner? Well, I've known about Len Lai for ages. I I went to went to art school as you mentioned earlier, ATI as, as it then was known, Auckland Technical Institute to do graphic arts, and um, the lecturer who became my husband. Uh, Ken Robinson, who actually passed away this year, uh, introduced us to this figure, Len Lai, uh, in life drawing class, I think it was. And he put on the scratch films. He put on uh, Tusa Lava and Free Radicals. Wow! And I'd never seen such thing. I'd never seen experimental filmmaking like that from a New Zealander who was still alive then, because he didn't die till 1980. And that, that had quite, a, quite an effect on me because we got to make scratch films of our own. All the students were given clear film stock um, and we 
painted on them or black film stock, I think that we scratched away a la free radicals. And that was quite an experience. And, I, and we, we had to put music with it. And I put Kachichurian's Sabre Dance <laughs> to knock out little, very short, punchy orchestral work with mine. So that was an early exposure to, to Len. And then subsequently, I, I tried to see as much Len Lai as possible. There was a big show at the Auckland Art Gallery, memorable to anyone who witnessed it. Uh, in 1980 of Len's kinetic works. Um, you know, the famous blade, the, the, the um, vertical oscillating stainless steel blade against which a cork ball um, pings and twangs. A fantastic thing and, and universe, which is the big um, bumbling kind of bouncing ovoid. Uh, which does a similar kind of dance, completely unique pieces. Uh, Len was a real visionary. Anyway, so when in 1990, whatever, or 2000 and something, there was a wild opera scheme mentioned, uh, I thought, oh, I could get in on that. Who could I do a... You had to choose a New Zealand topic or a New Zealand person. And I really thought of Len Lai in an instant. So I got on the phone to Roger Horrocks, who's the world authority on Len, and also a good friend of mine. And he'd just written the biography, Len Lai, the biography, just looking at my bookcase here, um, wonderful book. I said, Roger, what do you reckon we write an opera on um, Len Lai? And he said, sure, keep talking. So we kept talking about it and eventually, about a decade later, um, Len Lai the Opera was performed and it was, it was quite a success. Four nights, full house um, at the Maidment Theatre in Auckland and a, a real collaboration. I mean, a, a messy, wonderful, richly populated uh, behemoth of a thing that it was, and it was only a chamber opera. You know, there only, it was only 13 of them on stage, for goodness sake, and, uh, but, but a thing like that is a lot. It's a big load to put on because you've got all these collaborators and everyone's on the same vision page, but everyone has their own slight views on how it should be aesthetically. Um, so that was Len Lai, the opera. And while I was writing that, I had a couple of commissions. One was in two, early 2000s for a new work for the New Zealand International Festival of the Arts in Wellington. And I chose to write for Helen Medlin, the redoubtable uh, opera singer. So I wrote Len's songs and I took some of Len's, nine of his wonderful, and wacky uh, and quirky and moving poems and set them for Helen. And that was Len's songs. And then Len Dances was an, another separate commission from the Auckland Philharmonia for a fanfare, a short fanfare using a New Zealand topic. So the, all the, the opera and the dances and the songs all have similar woven uh, 
melodies and and uh, rhythms and uh, sort of tropes. Uh, and I guess that that comes back to what we were saying before about reusing material. And I haven't often done it, but that's an example of material moving between these Len Lai works. And in the opera and Len dances, you actually use bits of kinetic sculpture. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Oh, yes. At the end, um, yes, in the earlier piece, Len dances, I thought, well, I'll finish off by having the three percussionists there were, what luxury, um, uh, as well as the timpanist, which is always a thing, you know, there's four of them, four of them up the back. Well, it's, you know, it's not as big as uh, my mate John Psathis goes, but hey, <laughs> not many people can handle that number of percussionists. Um, and I thought I'll have a, a, you know, big full-on stainless steel Len kind of event happening. So I went down to the Gavette Brewster and met with the people there, I think Evan Webb um, um, and some of the engineers who worked within the archive there, John Matthews, you know, really important people who've, who've kept Len's work alive in New Zealand, based at the Gavette Brewster Gallery in New Plymouth. And I was taken down in the archive and allowed to choose some, some strips of discarded stainless steel and bring them home. And one was a, a blade type, short enough to, to twang, and the other was long enough to kind of whip like that. And the other had a weird kind of little metal tongue on the end. God knows what they did with that. I remember on the, at the premiere, one of the percussionists who shall remain unnamed dropped theirs thereby adding to the sort of metallic tintinabulation, I guess, because it's quite hard to wield. Mm -hmm. uh, we've all, you know, terrible things that can happen with, with whirling hua, um, for example, that kind of thing. Boy, you have to know what you're doing if you're going to be flinging some, a missile round in the air like that. Any percussion that's a bit dodgy, you know, <laughs> drum heads jumping off and bouncing over <laughs> the orchestra and into the audience. Uh, and then for Len Lai the Opera, I think, because I had a drum kit player and a percussionist, I had Ron Sampson on drum kit and um, the wonderful John Bell on vibraphone and percussion, and I think I got, I got them with stainless steel sheets and to just make as a, a bigger racket as they possibly could near the end there. Um, and also replicated on the um, sound on the video that we had showing of Lynn's sculptures to get that all encompassing. Because if, you, if you've stood or witnessed a work oh, like the magnificent um, Flip and Two Twisters, which is two ominously dangling strips, vast, huge gallery size, and a middle innocent looking uh, metal Mobius strip that at its peak turns inside out. A fantastic thing. It really is. Um, Flipping two twist, twisters and it starts to go crazy and builds, um, sort of builds up momentum, or as they say, <laughs> sometimes in the media, 
builds to a crescendo. You will have seen that anyway. It's, it's a bit mean to criticize people whose specific <laughs> world isn't music. Um, I think they're just trying to avoid using the word climax. But anyway, the thing builds until this Mobius strip of metal flips. Oh, so that's the kind of all-encompassing energy when you witness those things that I was trying to replicate um, in the opera. Uh, so that's Len Life for you. This, this guy that was full of life. He had a wonderful word, ziz, Z-I-Z-Z, Z-Z, really onomatopoeic. He talked about a feeling of ziz and he was polychromatic and he was quirky and he was impossibly romantic and, and loved women to a fault. And he, he would have been a hard guy to be married to. He had two wives and they're both um, depicted in the opera. Uh, his second and most beloved wife, Anne, played by um, the gorgeous Anna Pierrard. And they, they had an open marriage, uh, as it were, successfully. Uh, for a long time. And that, that added a sort of poignancy to the thing, that, that love story of Len and Anne. And of course, working with Roger Horrocks, who'd known Len and worked for him later on in his life, um, gave me access to all these really personal stories that he had spent 20 years on. So uh, it's just a lovely, rich experience, the whole thing. In fact, I've just two weekends ago, just before lockdown, been down to the Gavette Brewster Len Lye Center. What a stonking legacy that is for Len. If you've been to that wonderful um, undulating metal building in New Plymouth there, right adjoining the Gavette Brewster uh, for a Len Lye Festival rainbow dance. And uh, anyway, I could bang on. And this, the very same night Len dances was performed in Christchurch by the symphony orchestra down there. So Len lives. I'm glad to be keeping him alive to a certain extent. What do you think about sort of the legacy of, of New Zealand opera, not the company, but of opera written in New Zealand here? We have a number of really, we have quite a strong history of written operas. I'm thinking of the operas of Gillian Whitehead, um, yourself and Gareth Farr, many others. And there seems to be an instance where they'll get a premiere at a festival or something, and then we often won't hear them again. And it often means that there are these quite seminal New Zealand opera that we then don't have recordings of um, in, in a medium that is, is easily accessible. What do you think about that? <laughs> uh, well, apart from agreeing with you, that is the case. They're, they're multimedia in many cases, ours was. Ours was a very modest chamber opera compared with, say, oh, um, no, Jack Body's Alley, which I thought was a remarkable work, one of the best things I've seen uh, from New Zealand. I remember being at that pre premiere thinking, this has to be restaged. Um, uh, that was also had, had soundtrack and and you know singers flown in from China that kind of that kind of difficulty um Chris Blake's Bitter Calm I never got to see live but he had um 
water raining on stage, that kind of thing. Um, Jenny's Hohepa, which I did get to see, would seem fairly straightforward to restage, but then you have to, you have to have brilliant singers, a director who's keen on doing it, a company that's keen on doing it. How many opera companies have we got? So um, the, the opera by its very nature is a bit too unwieldy for its own good. So I would suggest to anyone wanting to do one, keep it, keep it doable, keep it within the bounds of a small group of instruments, a small group of singers and modest means. And I remember seeing at Opera Factory quite a few years ago now, a little opera by Lyle Cresswell. There were only, a, I think it was only a trio, but boy, that thing packed a punch. It was a dark story. It was Cresswellian and, and, and musical tone, which was intense and dark, fantastic thing. So I think um, there are plenty of musicians and singers around who would welcome something uh, that's performable like that. Uh, Peter Scholes with his Auckland Chamber Company has, has put on um, uh, operatic works because he, he's got a group and he's willing. But it's the word opera that puts people off because people have got some, pre well, fair enough. People have a preconceived notion that opera is something grand with a huge orchestra and singers dressed up in outlandish old fashioned clothes, but, you know, howling sopranos and all the rest of it and reprobate tenors and, and baddies on stage in an opera house. So it, it's a matter of changing that, that mindset. Um, my friend Alex Taylor, composer and, and co and friends put on the most wonderful retelling of Dido and Aeneas a few years ago. And they staged it at Te Uru, which is a um, flamboyantly designed, fabulous uh, art gallery up um, out west here with bright yellow uh, staircases. And they performed it a sort of perambulatory version and the wigs were con a contemporary take on wigs. And Alex himself was frocked up in, in um, sort of semi kinky porn gear, uh, screeching his, his head off. And, but it was very tastefully and imaginatively done. And that was a restaging of opera. So it's really, a matter of how you think about it. You know, have a, have a, a video is easy enough to have as a, as a background. That's what we had. Shirley Horrocks, uh, who's a well-known filmmaker, documentary filmmaker, did the, did the visuals for our opera with a video behind the, the players. So really it's a definition of what the word means. And there's been a lot of, um, uh, uh, controversy around the New Zealand Opera Company recently about personnel and and all this kind of thing. Uh, classical music in this culture has always struggled a bit. You know, it's the whole bums on seats thing. It's justifying to your funders. Any big organisation has that kind of justification, and a lot of orchestras and companies do really well that they can be adventurous at the same time as catering for the for their traditional audience because in a way of course we know an orchestra is a museum piece it's it's 
I hate to hear myself saying this, it's, it tends to be relevant to um, a small number of people in terms of its makeup and also to a, uh, to a composer. It's a kind of historical nonsense in many ways. That's a fairly extreme view. But if, if you think about it cleanly and objectively, what the hell are we all do, doing writing for orchestra? <laughs> it's a construct that belongs in previous centuries. It's hierarchical. It's, it's, it's um, you know, patriarchal. It, it has this ridiculous lineup of, of um, badly acoustically designed uh, <laughs> choirs that are rooted in spot. You know, no, no wonder Luciano Berrio tried, tried to manipulate the thing, as did Stockhausen. Of course, those aren't the orchestral works that most people want to hear or are aware of. But I just offer that as, a, as a, an extreme maverick view of the kind of musical culture. An opera is just, means work, you know, opus work, opera, many works. An opera it should be any anything. And when we were writing Len Lai, the opera, um, we toyed about calling it a music drama. Um, what do you call anything? It's like a symphony. There's been a lot of uh, male composers in this country who write symphonies. For some reason, <laughs> women don't do it. Anyway, this I'm digressing here wildly, but not that much. Uh, it, it's all about you, 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 you came at me with this problem of, of opera. Uh, make an opera for a bunch of uh, uh, flautists and some paintings in the background and some chanting singers and an off, offstage person with a, with a um, uh, loud hailer. Boom, you've got an opera. You know, you've got an orchestral piece. You don't have to call it a symphony. Men do that. It, it, is, it is something that you, you do see and um, you want, you, there's obviously that balance of, of who sees themselves represented in the writing of symphonies. And that's probably, that's, right. that's where some of that certainly, certainly, you know, a lot of male composers writing symphonies, it's, it's seen as their addition to this symphonic canon. To the canon, that's right. And, and which of us hasn't been, brought up and I don't put us in that category you and I in that category although not too far wrong with the idea of the symphony orchestra as the pinnacle of western musical achievement and the symphony as as the icing um the the that's not a good word is the ingredient musical form I still uh, catch myself shape. I still catch myself having to to uh push push out those those thoughts in my, in my own my own that's head. right so deeply inculcated that inculcated they are and and it's a bit like that with tonality but that's another that's another conversation because that's of worms. Too, and and it's yeah, too deeply rooted so all these things so opera make it what you like just be imaginative with it and i think this guy who's getting all the flack at new zealand opera has copped that flack because he's tried to do something different. And personally, I, I applaud that, um, full stop.
All right, so we'll end with five quick fire questions. These are oh gosh, we're going to ask everyone. So the first of these is, where do you go to be creative? Is there a space, location, or office that has been predictively productive over your career to create it? Well, I'm just searching around my room as we speak, and I've got a small house here, and I like to keep it nice and colourful and stimulating, so that wherever I sit. I'm stimulated by what I see, that's for sure. And I also like a view so that I can look out the window and look over at or down on. Um, but mainly I think the creative thoughts come with movement, with movement, with walking. I used to go jogging, don't do that so often. Now swimming, uh, uh, walking coastally, any form of walking where there's a vista is summon seems to free up your ear, free your creativity up and get those juices flowing. And if if you set yourself just thinking about your the problem of the work that you're on, a, a solution will probably come rather than sitting there gazing at blank manuscript as we think of it. Which is always terrifying. All right. Yes, that's right. Second question, are there any performances, collaborations, or uh, professional relationships that stand out to you throughout your career? Oh, yes, a lot. <laughs> um, it's how to narrow them down. I mean, I've had a lot of terrific performers, soloists, really. I like working with soloists because it, there's a sort of relationship that you can get going. And when I think about those people more recently with Nicholas Isherwood, great um, American-based baritone specializes in Stockhausen, uh, you know, someone who can sing anything. So when you're faced with an individual like that, you, you have to limit yourself in terms of what you can get them to do. Likewise, the late Jane Manning, wonderful British soprano who, who had perfect pitch and, 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 uh, that kind of, I like a wrangling with someone who's, who's better than you can imagine. The Russian cellist, uh, the late uh, Alexander Ivashkin, who taught here for a while. Wow, what a musician. What a deep knowledge of things, Russian. And he wrote the book on Schnitke. Working with them was, was a privilege. But, but mainly here, I found that my most uh, meaningful musical collaborations come from other New Zealanders, people that I've worked with over the years, people like um, Stephen De Pledge, uh, Gareth Farr, um, Dan Poynton, the wonderful pianist, used to play a lot of my stuff, Peter Scholes, Andrew Uren, terrific simpatico players who kind of get my music, Ashley Brown, more latterly Mary Boynton, Miranda Adams, um, we all come from the same place, Aotearoa, and get the sounds of the land, and they know me and what I'm on about. And I think that's pretty important. Uh, you know, you can think about the international names, but they have a, an objectivity uh, th uh, that misses out somehow on the soul of the sound that I'm on about or we're on about, if I can think of New Zealand music and the collective. What is one of the strangest experiences, any unusual or unexpected experiences you've had as a composer? Um, <laughs> uh, 
as a composer, well, I guess just meeting people, it's more performing stuff. It's putting on the music of, it's mounting. I've done a lot of events and, and curating and, and, and mounting of concerts. And those are the things one tends to think of the way pianos can misbehave just when you don't want them to, like the piano that whose legs suddenly um, plunge through the stage floor at Martinborough once when we were running an event there. And then there was the, when I had Reed Gainsford, a wonderful New Zealand pian pianist lives in Florida, visiting and he was, he was playing Messiaen's uh, Van Regard. And I was in charge of the concert. And you know, you check a, a, pian a piano and you put the lid up and you lock the wheels, but you forget to lock one of them. And as he, and this was a concert, and I sat there in absolute terror as he pounded those immortal chords. And with every chord, the piano moved a centimeter away from him and I couldn't do anything about it. So that's a fun memory, as was the other day, it seems, uh, putting on uh, uh, my beloved friend, Anaya Lockwoods, uh, another composer who lives, in, lives away, lives in, in the States. Uh, we decided, I decided to do her work called Gone, G-O-N-E, and it has helium balloons, and you tie them to a, a music box piano, which I found on Trade Me, a little white, fairly vulgar sort of thing uh, that played. And then we had to blow up the helium balloons. I was determined to do this work anyway. Gosh, it was fun. And John Coulter and I, who, we were running this Carl Heinz Company concert. We, we had to find the optimum time of inflating them with helium so that they didn't deflate or anything before the concert at seven o'clock, let's say. So we had them all inflated and we had them tethered and lifting this little piano around the, the theater in rehearsal it was quite magical, it really was. Came to the performance and you could guess the rest. So the singer went behind the screen to bring these balloons, but like that famous French film, The Boy with the Red Balloon, the red balloon set in Paris, but a whole 60 of them. And let it go, it went slowly, slowly down until it sat on the floor. And so the whole effect of the piece completely disappeared. But uh, yeah, th those are just a few memorable things <clears throat> that weren't my music, but I was heavily involved in the performance. <laughs> Fabulous. Any memorable non-composer jobs you've had over the years? Oh gosh, yes, lots of those. Um, uh, one of my favorite jobs was working in a petrol station. I was about a late teenager. And I guess my then boyfriend had the job and he said, I could get you a job here as often happened in those days or in the days when it was much easier to get a job you more or less applied for one and sort of got it. I, that's what I used to find. We're talking about the 70s here. And I just loved it. You were outside. Um, I used to wear sort of little tiny denim shorts and gloves and you'd pull the gloves on and you'd go out to meet the customers and you'd check the oil and you'd pump the petrol and you'd, you'd oh look, there was something about working outside, having the exercise, being a, a 
girl in a man's domain. So I think I drew quite a lot of customers apparently. Um, and just the whole freedom of that physical kind of work, which I've never, which is the opposite of what a composer does. And um, oh, I've done things like work in a pantry, when I was a bit older, making chocolate truffles and, um, you know, having to brush your teeth just before you got into that particular job in case you ate the whole mixture while you, while you were going. But, um, and I've done very jobs for very short periods of time. And you see how, I mean, on a serious note, you see how hard that workers really work, how hard they work. Oh boy. And I'm a strong unionist by Jingo, as my father used to say. Um, and, you know, this is things like bed making, you go to be a housemaid at a big hotel. One day I lasted in that job. Bed making, you go round underneath the thing, make the bed and the physical. And then there was the time I was a cleaner. Two days, I think I lasted cleaning. You had to start five o'clock in the morning. It's dark, it's freezing, you're cleaning. Oh boy. The workers, they keep the society going. And in lockdown, um, this is who we're relying on. All these people, all these people keeping the wheels of everyday life uh, going on. How did I get onto that? So lec university lecturing after all that um, is a complete contrast, standing in front of students and trying to be stimulating. Though that's what I've spent most of my life doing. And that's, that can be deeply satisfying, uh, but also incredibly frustrating. Um, but I'm glad to have spent a lot of time doing it because I feel as I've been able to give something and I've got a hell of a lot back. Great. And finally, what is a reading recommendation you would make? Ooh, anything by Rebecca Solnit the incredibly smart, incredibly sharp American essayist, or if you're on Facebook, you can read her posts there, but any, anything by her, her essays uh, and, and stories and observations um, uh, really would be a, a, a pick right up there. And I've got many of her books on the bookshelf, which is sort of increasing. Uh, and I think a, a lot of people are in that position because I like essay, the essay form and books where I can dip in and out of, so it's not necessarily a narrative to follow. Great. Well, thanks so much, Eve. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and uh, thanks for your time. Thank you, Nathaniel. Ngamihi. Ngamihi. And that's just about us for this first episode of the Sonic Speculations podcast. I'd like to once again thank Eve for her time, and indeed thank everyone who's made it to the end of this episode. If you'd like to hear more from Eve, check out either her interview on the Sounds, Moments and Time podcast, where she speaks about her work, The Cries of Auckland, or check out her 2018 Lilburn lecture, available on the RNZ website. If you've enjoyed this interview, please like or rate this episode, and you can subscribe in order to get every interview we do here quickly. If you want to get in touch, please email me, sonicspeculations at gmail.com, and I'll be back in a fortnight's time with another episode.